1: Well, welcome to the Mortification of Spin, the regular podcast of the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals. My name's Carl Truman, and I'm here with my co hosts, Todd Pruitt, mega church pastor from Virginia, and Amy Bird, the thinking man's response to. Who is it we're responding to these days, Amy? It's safer if we do Joyce Meyer. Joyce Meyer, that's it. Yeah. Joyce Meyer. <laughs> yes. Amy, not quite being orthodox enough to be a, a replacement. <laughs> more, I suspect. (laughs) Anyway, we have a very special guest
2: today. the
3: Baptists are going to hate you.
1: (laughs) (laughs) We have a special guest today, a topic we haven't actually covered in all the years of the podcast. We have generally not addressed issues of uh, science and faith. Partly, I suspect, due to the fact that none of the three of us are remotely competent (laughs) to comment on these issues. (laughs) Uh, Uh. But I was in a restaurant a couple of weeks ago with a group of pastors and The lady waiting tables recognized one of the men as a pastor and said, are you the pastor of this church? And he confirmed it. And he then invited her to the church. And she said, oh, no, no, I wouldn't come because my parents were both scientists. Mm. And it struck me as an interesting response that clearly in her mind, you had a choice in this life between being scientifically serious or believing in some kind of supernatural religion. There's no doubt that the scientific paradigm has become somewhat dominant in certain intellectual quarters over the last 150, 200 years and has done significant damage to the Orthodox faith. And yet, there are individuals out there who are highly qualified in the scientific community and also Bible believing, faithful Christians. There are different strands, uh, different aspects to the kind of people you find involved in this. But the man we're speaking to today is Douglas Axe. Douglas is the director of the Biologic Institute, and he has a Caltech PhD, has held postdoctoral research positions at the University of Cambridge, the Cambridge Medical Research Council Centre, and the Babraham Institute in Cambridge. His work has featured in many scientific journals, and he's the author most recently of a book entitled Undeniable, How Biology Confirms Our Intuition That Life Is Designed. Douglas uh, Axe is therefore an advocate of, of what is often called the intelligent design movement, and we want to interview him today to see what insights he can bring from his learning and his studies to help those of us who are interacting with individuals who perhaps, due to their education or due to books they've read or a a Richard Dawkins lecture they've seen online, have found their faith challenged and perhaps corroded in significant ways. So welcome to the program, Douglas. It's great to be here. Thanks for being on. Would you like to just tell us in brief uh, how you got into this line of work or thinking and what the significance of it is for you?
4: Sure. I... Really was in love with science before I was a Christian. My dad worked for Dow Chemical Company, and I saw him as a scientist, professional career scientist, and I thought I would go that direction. Was much more interested in the physical sciences than in biology. Became a Christian in my teen years. And shortly after that, was studying chemical engineering at UC Berkeley and getting this now new Christian worldview and seeing how it collided with a worldview that was coming across in chemistry lectures, of all things. Hmm. And professors, one that I recall in particular in my undergraduate education, using lectures to undergraduates as an opportunity to lampoon faith and take stabs at faith, and as a young believer I didn't find any compelling argument in what was being made, but I felt as though There was an abuse of power here, and I felt also as though there was something inappropriate about using a subject that wasn't, in my mind, antithetical to faith at all, as though it gave power to undermine faith. And I think that was the beginning of stirrings in me that led me eventually to ask whether my career should go in a direction of doing apologetics through the sciences. And it also led me in the direction of biology, which I had not been interested in before. But by the time I was entering into graduate school, I had a choice of what I wanted to specialize in. And suddenly, what had been a boring subject to me as a high school student became fascinating. And the reason was high school biology, dissecting a frog and memorizing the names of bones, none of which I found very compelling. When it came to my connecting engineering and computing, which I loved, with life, through the genetic code and through molecular mechanisms that enable cells to work. I suddenly saw this connection between engineering and biology became very fascinated with it. And at the same time, I started to become interested in the possibility of someone putting to a rigorous scientific test these claims that seemed very flimsy to me that the things of life could happen through accidental causes. So, I was learning about life at the molecular level, and every now and then there would be this lip service paid to Darwinian Explanation for Life, but it never connected in a serious way in my mind, and I wondered whether anyone had done the serious work, and if not, I was the one who wanted to do it, and that's kind of what got me going this way.
3: So, this is really interesting to me. You mentioned that you went to that very conservative Christian school, UC Berkeley, and um, what's fascinating to me about that is the trajectory you had is so different from the trajectory that is so common among kids who are raised in Christian homes, raised believing, they go and then their faith is shipwrecked in an introductory biology class or an introductory philosophy class. Here you are, a teenager who comes to Christ, and instead of your faith being shipwrecked at a place like UC Berkeley, it caused a very different set of things to come forward in your mind. What some of our kids raised in church feel is so overwhelmingly pervasive. You saw as, and I think rightly so, a professor almost abusing his influence and his authority. I'm going to ask you a question that that you may not have an answer to, and and it's okay. It's a broad question, but what do you see as typically what's behind this trajectory that we often see of Christian kids going to school and being so gobsmacked in their first year at, at university?
4: Yeah, I don't have a clear answer to that, and I have two kids graduating on Monday from high school, so this is real to me. Yeah, uh, and they're believers, and I hear some statistics that I think are very alarming, like a large fraction of kids coming from Christian homes walking away from the faith. But I also heard a hopeful statistic that by the age of thirty-five, a substantial yes. fraction of those have returned. Is hopeful. Yeah, having I mean, pursued argumentation for a long time, I become more and more convinced of something that most people think is a no-brainer that I should have known from the beginning, and that is we're not primarily rational creatures. Hmm. We have an intellect, we think about things, but we're mostly heart-led. And for the most part, we're using our intellect to justify the actions of the heart, not to inform the actions of the heart. So, if that's roughly correct, and I've come to that by seeing how little impact good arguments have on people who don't want to hear them right. and that yeah. happens time and time again and how smart people will put up really stupid arguments to defend something just because they want to and that becomes compelling after a while it makes me wonder whether there's a sort of a groundswell of not wanting to commit one's life to a course that has clear implications for how one should live one's life And that kicks in in the teen years, and to some extent it has always kicked in. I wonder if we're in an age right now where it's kicked in big time, and it's so easy for kids to connect to things that aren't consistent with Christian walk, and then when they're away from home, they want to go that way. And I think that, by God's mercy, a good fraction of them see, you know, I thought there was something good out there. It's the prodigal. I thought there was something good out there. (laughs) There isn't. And I want to come back to something that's that's true.
2: It's interesting that you say, you make this argument that we're often heart-led, and I think that that is an argument that a lot in the atheist scientific community would make against Christians. And so, my father-in-law is, well, he, he calls himself agnostic. And that would be how he views me, probably. And so, it's really hard to have a rational argument sometimes with him. And then yet, and he's a very intelligent man, a retired engineer, but, you know, he'll say something to me like, he believes that we were all made from stardust. Hmm. And, you know, like it blows my mind that he doesn't think that he has a faith that is heart-led as well, you know, and just asking the question, how do thoughtful, relational, loving, beautiful, moral beings come from stardust? Yes. And he has no answer. And so it's, it's interesting. You're doing a talk at the Insuppressible Conference coming up here in July why does science need faith? Yeah. I'd love to hear you talk about that a little bit now.
4: Sure. Let me mention first someone I cite in my book. I don't know if you come across Thomas Nagel, philosopher of mind, yes. who is refreshingly candid about the heart aspect of atheism, which is very helpful because so many of these, you know, Neil deGrasse Tyson, Richard Dawkins, Carl Sagan types, want to present atheism as something that is the natural outcome of rational exploration. The more you know about reality, the more likely it is that you become an atheist, which is a complete bug. Thomas Nagel, instead, and he's got a great book that I have here somewhere called Mind and Cosmos, Why the Materialist Neo-Darwinian Conception of Nature is Almost Certainly False, Hmm. where he acknowledges that, in that book and in prior writings, he acknowledges that you cannot explain the, the, the most central things about us, consciousness, cognition, and moral sense, from the periodic table of the elements. It just doesn't work. And so, he's an atheist. He says, the materialist version of atheism does not work because it can't explain things that we most need to explain, the things that are at the very core of us. So, we need to reboot naturalism. Help me come up with a version of naturalism that actually explains these things that are so essential to us and essential parts of reality that matter and motion, you know, space-time, matter, and energy do not explain so it's a refreshing take on atheism. So I talk about this in my book. First of all, I think there's a character of faith that a lot of people are dealing with, that an atheist will tend, or a, a, someone who's scientific in their thinking, so they're actually, their faith is science, mm-hmm. they don't think of it as faith. They think of faith as being a crutch, a mental crutch. It right. is wishful thinking. So it's the things that you wish were true, you pretend they're true, and you build your life around them, that's what they think faith is. Now, ironically, to a large extent, that's what the atheist is doing. Mm -hmm. But what I say in my book is, whatever you think about atheism or God, it is a fact that you cannot do science without taking certain things to be true, which you cannot demonstrate to be true through science. (laughs) So, Mm -hmm. you're stuck. If you think all we have to get to truth is science, well, you have to start, in order to start doing science, you have to believe several just very elementary things. I exist, there is an outside world out there, there's sense to be made of the outside world out there, and I have the mental capacity to make sense out of things through observation and calculation, and reason. If any of those things is not true, they're so fundamental. If any one of those is not true, then we're stuck. I cannot do science. I can't even prove that you exist. I can't prove that I exist. I can't prove that anything works, including gravity, without having some confidence in my ability to reason from observation. That's the starting point for doing science. So those things, your typical atheist, because nobody argues about those things, we all believe them to be true, they want to take that as a given starting point. But the the fact is, you cannot prove that starting point by doing science. You have to take it on faith. So that's why I say, actually, all science starts with faith, and really all human knowledge starts with faith. And I'm not discounting the fact that we can learn great things by doing science, but you start with things that you cannot prove by doing
3: science. It's interesting because everybody has a metaphysic. Richard Dawkins has a metaphysic. He begins with certain a priori assumptions when he's looking at data. There's a grid that he looks at that data through. And it seems that among the materialist scientific community, they had as strong a hierarchy of heresies as any Orthodox Christian does, in terms of things that you just do not depart from, in terms of what they presuppose. And it was interesting, I heard an interview with Dawkins where he said, while the idea of God is, is laughable to him, he was giving serious voice to the potential that life on Earth was seeded here by alien civilizations. And he actually used the term rocket ship you know, that crashed at some point on a primordial earth and seeded life. And so he's willing to believe that before he would believe what we believe from Romans one is actually written on his heart, but he'll take an alien rocket ship over the idea that there could be an all yeah, there are other strange versions of this i don't know if you've heard of
4: elon musk's idea yes. that yes. most likely we are living within a computer simulation and right. there's an understandable but highly flawed line of reasoning that gets you there yeah. but for a rational person to think most likely this is not real what we mm-hmm. think is reality most likely we're living inside a computer simulation is another very strange direction that this can take me, and it makes you wonder, do these people ever step back and say, hang on, there's just (laughs) a common sense litmus test that I need to put this idea to, and basically you can't do science if you have Elon Musk, so there's irony in this, you're trying to do SpaceX, you're trying to explore Mars, and you think that it's all happening in the simulation, it's it's like a self-defeating version of reality.
3: Right. Yeah. There just seems to be among many, not all, but many of the materialistic scientific community, a stubborn unwillingness to consider what seems to be very obvious. And and that's where you have to get into that. So there's a philosophical, a religious commitment on their part to not allow it to be true. I heard Michael Schwermer, the founder of Skeptic Magazine, being interviewed on PBS one time, and he was raised in a Christian home. And he said flat out, when he went to university, he admired the lifestyle of the atheist students that he met, and he wanted to adopt their lifestyle. And that was the thing that compelled him into unbelief, was he preferred the choices they were making. And it was, a, it was an interesting moment of real kind of honest vulnerability at that point, that what drew him initially to atheism had nothing to do with
1: arguments, but a preferred kind of lifestyle. To go to the design issue, Douglas, if I could sort of play perhaps the the devil's advocate here a bit. I mean, there's Paley's argument about you you find a watch, you assume there's a watchmaker. We look at the world around us and it seems to have a coherence, a beauty. It seems to fit together nicely. You can look at parts of the human body and see that they seem to work rather well to do what they're meant to be doing. And you could make an argument that the chances of this all coming around through random evolution, billions and billions to one, but one could make the same argument about the New Jersey lottery. You know, <laughs> the chances of winning the New Jersey lottery, are, if I don't buy a ticket, I only stand a slightly less of a chance of winning than somebody <laughs> who does, but somebody wins the lottery. Right. In looking prospectively, the chances look microscopic, but retrospectively, somebody's got to win the lottery. Some set of conditions are going to apply. How would you respond to that?
4: There are a couple of aspects in which the state lottery is not analogous to what would need to be explained for chance to come up with, say, a dragonfly. Uh, One is that magnitude of improbability. So we think of winning the lottery as being improbable, but in fact, we're talking about one in 10 million or something like that, depending on what level you want to win. You're playing against millions of others, not billions of others, and there are going to be winners those are pretty good odds. There are one in 10 million those happen all the time. Whereas accidental chemical processes producing a dragonfly Mm. on a lifeless planet, that's staggeringly less improbable than one in a billion. We're talking about one in a trillion, 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 keep going on and on and on. Like one in 10 to the maybe millionth power improbable. So it's staggeringly less probable than winning the lottery. The other aspect of this that's disanalogous is the odds of someone winning the lottery, I don't know what the cycle is, like you do one every month or they do some week draw, it's is one. Someone's gonna win because they are going to do the draw and it's gonna be someone. It's not gonna be you, probably. <laughs> so that, that's the improbable part. But someone is going to win. Whereas it is not the case that random processes work on random material. If you go to a lifeless planet it is not the case that something like a dragonfly is going to happen, and it may or may not be a dragonfly. Anything remarkable like a dragonfly that has this layered complexity to mm-hmm. it, coherence, the sum total of all such outcomes is demonstrably impossibly improbable, not just one in a billion. I call things fantastically improbable in my book if they're so improbable that the universe is not big enough or old enough for them to happen. So you can call them physically impossible at a point where the improbability is so low that there isn't enough material or time in this universe for them to happen accidentally. And that's roughly 1 in 10 to the 100th power, roughly the cutting point where if it's less probable than that, it's not going to happen. The lottery is much more probable than that. And it doesn't have this remarkable property of producing something that we know only comes from intelligence. So those are the two things that are... It's an understandable thing that people get confused on, and they think if the probability is not zero, then oh, it could happen. But it turns out You can have a probability that's not zero, but it's so small that
3: it can. Yeah. So even going then beyond the example of the dragonfly is taking it even further to going from the collision of noble gases and some dust to the composition of King Lear is how can you even begin to measure the lack of probability of that happening, because yeah. not only do you have the odds of a human being, but then moral and creative reasoning and those kinds of things—it's staggering. We really don't have a word to say how staggering it is.
4: Yeah, word, words fail us here. Yeah. I mean, in undeniable, I make this case based on probability and what I call fantastic improbability. And in fact, a number that I got from research that was published in the journal of Molecular Biology in 2004 for getting a single unit of a protein so 150 amino acid domain per protein the particular one that i was studying i found the odds to be one in 10 to the 74th power which is like one in a trillion 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 that's for one little chunk of an enzyme doesn't even come close to what you would mm. need to get an organism or an insect to get. Sounds like a it, lot of faith. <laughs> it, it's a, it's a, well, actually, this is faith as blind faith. Right, it, right. This is the character version faith. of faith, not the positive version of faith. Mm-hmm. But the other aspect of this that I turn to later in the book allows you to go beyond numbers and beyond improbability and say, no, it's categorically impossible when you talk about consciousness, cognition, and moral sense. The very same mm. things that Thomas Nagel talked about. Once you open the door to that question, then you realize it's categorically impossible to get Mm -hmm. these things from the periodic table. They're just not there.
2: And maybe this is more of a heart-led answer or reflection, but when you get to that point and you then ponder intelligent design and all of creation and the fact that we do have these moral thinking capacities, it's so beautiful. I mean, it's so glorious, like just like the title of the conference, you know, insuppressible, glory, gospel, and the design of life. It's just that something that you would want to embrace, you think.
4: Yeah, and there's something interesting there, too, because I think atheists also want to embrace. Mm -hmm. I mean, they clearly do. So, I just came across a Neil deGrasse Tyson thing that I mildly lampooned on Twitter (laughs) yesterday, where I can't remember the quote exactly, but Mm -hmm. we're all connected to each other biologically to the earth chemically, and to the universe atomically. And I thought, that's supposed to be touching. <laughs> <laughs> not, not stirring my heart the way no. it's supposed to. No. Uh, and what's happening there is Tyson is trying to bring together two things that I think don't go together. One is a reductionist, materialist view of reality, where I say absolutely everything comes down to atoms.
0: Mm-hmm.
4: And the other is the desire for something lofty and spiritual that makes life worth living. And he has that desire. And so does Richard Dawkins, and so Mm -hmm. did Carl Sagan. And yet you can't seem to meet that desire with your your reductionist view. You cannot go to Adams and satisfy this need for something deep within Mm -hmm. us. So, this quote saying, you know, we're all connected to the universe atomically. I You're trying to stir in emotion and it's just not happening.
3: Right, right. So, the conference coming up that Carl and Amy have mentioned, um, Insuppressible Glory, Gospel, and the Design of Life. It's in partnership with the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals that we're connected with. Tell us a little bit about that. What are kind of some of the questions that the conference is going to be seeking to answer?
4: Well, it's going to be three main speakers. I'll be speaking. Gabe Fur and Derek Thomas are also speaking. I haven't met these two guys, so I'm looking forward to meeting them. Coming at this from different angles, Derek Thomas speaking on the glory of God's design in creation, and I'm going to follow that with the undeniability of God's design in creation. So I think those two are two different aspects, the glory of God's creation,
2: mm-hmm. and the
4: fact that it really truly is undeniable, and this connects to... What I brought out in the book, I'm not trying to say that you have to be a scientist in order to understand that we are not accidents. I'm saying you can understand that perfectly well without being a scientist. Four-year-olds get this. It's the guys and gals with the PhDs who somehow lose track of it. And really, the book is about trying to take people, whether you have a PhD or not, take you back to the common sense thing that tells everyone, before they polluted their mind with all these other ideas, when you look at a butterfly, you know that it was, it was made by God. And then, let's see. So, that's on Friday, Saturday, Eric is talking about the glory of God's design and redemption. So, he first talks about design and creation, design and redemption. Dave is talking about insuppressable, suppressed. So, that's Romans 1, mm-hmm. the suppression of the truth. I'm talking about why science needs faith, and then after that, Dave is talking about why science needs the Bible. Um, and I don't know why he's going mm-hmm. to talk about it now, but I wanted to point out that this um, false dichotomy that says that unless you're going to check your brain at the door, you're going to end up having a rational view of reality that dismisses faith and recognizes that God is a fiction invented by humanity. That is a false view of science and it's a false view of faith. You can't actually do science without starting with faith. and. You cannot actually understand in full depth the beauty of the things that we're studying scientists unless you look to the person who put them together, the mm-hmm. triune God who put them together. So I think all this connects in a beautiful way. I'll be the only scientist thinking these guys are not scientists, but I really look forward to interacting with their depth of biblical understanding, which I don't have, but appreciate, and bringing this all together in a beautiful mm-hmm. way
3: When you're with those two other guys, use a lot of big scientific words and just try (laughs) try to embarrass them. Yeah,
4: what I want to do is intimidate with yeah. big science words.
3: Yeah, throw <laughs> just throw around phrases. Talk about yeah. punctuated equilibrium and throw away.
2: Oh, throw look at I using the big words. Now. Hey, hey,
1: you say you've never met them. I, I wouldn't have two <laughs> great expectations, and then. <laughs> <buzz>. <laughs> <laughs> and you can tell them I said that.
4: <laughs> I have heard good things about both of these guys. In fact, one of the people that I told that I was doing this conference to said, "Derek Thomas." So, he's my favorite preacher of all. So I'm looking forward to hearing you. Typically, people say that about me,
1: and so that's kind of... <laughs> hmm. Oh,
2: okay. brother.
1: All right, yeah.
2: That's a good note to end on, then, I think. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so, here at MOS, we're excited to be able to give away some free registrations to a few of our lucky listeners. If you want to go over to our website... Mortification of You can click to register to win one of those, and you'll be able to hear Douglas Axe speak some more on this. And, and thanks so much for talking to us today, Douglas. Yeah, this is great. Thank you for having me. I feel like we just scratched the surface, so hopefully, this will wet the palate for people to come to the conference as well. And thanks for listening to the podcast, and we look forward to talking to you next time while you're over at the website. Please remember that we are donor supported, so we really appreciate any prayers or any donations. To the podcast.
0: Thanks for listening to Mortification of Spin, a podcast of the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals visit the podcast page and blog at mortificationofspin.org where we'll have links and other articles from Amy, Carl, and Todd. And while you're there, please subscribe and consider making a donation. And come back next week for this conversation.
2: We're immature and fearful. We've forgotten what friendship really is. I think that's a great conversation to have right now in the social media times where you have 7,000 friends on Facebook and it means nothing. But if I were to suggest that friendship between the sexes can be a holy thing all of a sudden everyone's up in arms
0: that interview is next time join us then side not you? Well,
4: that's evolution for you.